0: Hey, everybody, Corey here. Before this episode of Penknife begins, we'd plan to hit you up with one of those shameless requests for money. And while we'd be very grateful to anyone who wants to contribute to our Patreon, our main need right now is for you listeners to help us promote Penknife. The best way you can do that would be to press pause right now and go and rate us on Apple Podcasts, or subscribe on whatever platform you're using to listen to us right now. Likewise, it'd be great if you could follow us and share a Penknife post on your social media. And most importantly, tell your friends. Okay, enough begging. Without further ado, here's the episode.
1: Excuse me, may I have everyone's attention please? Norris just phoned to say she and Norman will be a bit late, but told us to get started without them, so I suggest we do just that. I know we all more or less know each other here, but for those of you I just met, I'll reintroduce myself. I'm Jason Epstein, the executive editor at Random House, and... This evening, along with my indispensable editor extraordinaire Errol MacDonald, Random House is proud to have invited you here to celebrate the release of what might very well go on to be one of the most important books we ever publish. A book that has the potential to be so much more than a book. A book that... I believe, will change this country's criminal justice system and thus change countless lives for the better. A book that is nothing less than revolutionary. Jack, I'm going to spare you a toast right now, as I feel it's better to wait for Norman and Norris, but in the meantime, let's dig into the food. Go ahead, manja. There's your panzanella, along with a few marvelous plates of salumi and more antipasti on the way oh dear look at this for as delicate and as pure as rose petals and ah uh, do yourself a favor and do not i repeat do not leave this table without trying some of the sobracet it is to die for you can tell by the color actually see how red it is that it's been cured using quality chilies you don't think, necessarily think, of Italian food as having much picante...
2: So, Jack, I want to thank you for inviting me. I'm happy that I got to sit next to you, as I'd like for us to talk privately about a few private matters.
3: Yeah, uh, th- thanks for coming. I, uh, you, you know, m- s- s- sorry, sorry about those letters, you
2: know. Ah, uh, don't mention it water under the proverbial bridge Jack would you care for
1: some more salumi Uh, yeah sir I mean
3: Jason th- th- thank you S- some of that some of that bologna please if you, if you don't mind it's
1: mortadella and of course I don't mind here you are and bocconcini have some more
3: Oh, yeah, they're some some of the best best eggs I ever had. No yolks, huh? They're from some kind of special chicken or something?
1: Actually, they're cheese, Jack. Mozzarella cheese. They're called bocconcini because they're small, and you can put an entire one. Oh,
0: good people. Very sorry we're late. Norris had some makeup that needed doing, which is an absolute crime if you ask me. Go ahead, any of you. I dare you to tell me you've seen a woman more beautiful than this one. No offense, ladies. And gentlemen, don't be jealous. It's taken me five marriages to get to this point.
3: Hi, everyone. Apologies for our lateness. Like usual, what my husband just said is nonsense. We drove back from Provincetown this morning, and instead of relaxing, having a shower, and then coming to dinner, Norman had to go straight to the library to look at hieroglyphics.
0: Well, aside from the showering bit, which I assure you all I did thoroughly with hot water and fine Marseille soap, she's not entirely wrong. I was not simply looking at hieroglyphics, but reading them as well. A friend of mine who happens to be a world-renowned Egyptologist has been tutoring me. The most fascinating thing about them, though, is that they're at once both writing and art. Like calligraphy, but better. Think about it. There was a time when there was no distinction at all between fine art and writing. But that's another subject. How are you all? Jack, my good man, how hangs it? Good? Good. What is this we're drinking? Pinot Grigio?
1: (laughs) It's, uh, Treviano, Norman. uh, uh, Very fine and... I may say so, deservedly pricey white from Abruzzo.
0: That's great, Jason, and I'll take a glass, thank you very much. But I'm afraid it's not going to work with all the salsa de pomodoro I'll soon be lathering myself in. But it's a start. Jurs, Kiki, how are you? Well, I hope? Uh, We are fine, Norm, thank you. And you? Doing just great. Not only did I spend a few hours reading hieroglyphics, but I also checked out a number of books about pharaohs, mummies, and human sacrifice. So, if that's not a good day, I don't goddamn know what is. It's July 9th, 1981, and our gang's all here at Il Molino, a new high priced restaurant on West 3rd Street in the village. Italian, if you haven't already guessed. They're joined by Jack's editors Errol McDonald and Jason Epstein from Random House, Robert Silvers from NYRB, plus their dates and a few others. In the belly of the beast is about to hit bookstores, and the mood is celebratory. Abbott's sitting in the corner, back to the wall, looking particularly handsome, in his pinstripe suit, red tie, and circular, t-shaped glasses. He's quiet as his eyes dart about the restaurant, in between jerky swigs of wine and large mouthfuls of garlic bread. A rivulet of sweat is emerging from his brow, and the poor guy is clearly uncomfortable. But that's all right. Because tonight is his night. Jack Henry Abbott is about to be all sorts of famous.
2: In a week, his book will come out to rave reviews. And a 22-year-old Cuban-American named Richard Adan, a young actor and writer with a glowing smile and a promising career ahead of him, will lie face down on the corner of 2nd Avenue and 5th Street, the blood from his chest wound gushing like an open fire extinguisher during a heatwave. While Adan's body grows cold on the sidewalk, his murderer scrambles to plan his escape. He calls his buddy Norman in Provincetown but it's 6am Saturday morning and as Jack doesn't tell him what it's about, Norman tells him to call the fuck back later. Then after wasting time trying to find an open bank to withdraw cash, Jack decides to go uptown and keep his brunch date with Mailer's buddy, Jean Malaquet. Can you
0: imagine it? Brunching a few hours after sticking a knife in someone's chest? Well,
2: I don't think I'd be very hungry myself. But you never know. You can never underestimate people's appetite. Take our vecinos valencianos, for example. Five meals a day is the rule here, and the favorite amongst them all is el almuerzo. Essentially, a brunch of olives, peanuts, and a massive sandwich filled with some kind of meat, often horse or blood sausage. And of course, the whole thing has to be washed down with a beer or two, plus the obligatory spiked coffee at the end. That is definitely not
0: for me. But one thing I really like is calmly talking about literature. And that's exactly what Abbott did at brunch with Malachi. There was an APB out on his ass, and he sat there eating eggs and talking about T.S. Eliot.
2: In episode 2 of this podcast, you heard about what happened after he finished his eggs. He fled to Mexico, and then, because he had wasted his time in jail learning French and German rather than the Spanish that would have been useful to him south of the border, he went to New Orleans, where he was eventually captured, then extradited to New York, and convicted of manslaughter. Abbott spent the rest of his life in prison, and then, in 2002, at the age of 58, he hanged himself in his cell.
0: My name is Cory Eastwood, and I'm a failing writer, bookseller, and staunch opponent of both New York City brunch culture and Valencian almuerzo.
2: And I'm Santiago Lemoine, a failing writer, bookseller, and big enthusiast of both bottomless mimosas and nice arm-long bocadillos filled with scrambled eggs and morcilla, eaten at whatever time of day that might suit you, particularly between breakfast and lunch. But this episode is not about brunch, it's about dinner. A dinner that cemented the connection between Jack Henry Abbott, Jersey Kuczynski, and Norman Mailer, and about the far-reaching impact that connection had on the lives of Jersey and Norman. To the extent that anyone
0: remembers this dark moment in literary history, they generally recall that it was Mailer who bore the brunt of the backlash that followed Adan's murder. But as we'll see in this episode, of Abbott's two famous writer pals who he dined with a week before the murder. It was really Jersey Kaczynski who was most adversely affected. Indeed, the incident was the first in a series of political missteps that would bring upon his downfall. The story begins in 73, when under Kaczynski's leadership, the Pan America Writers' Organization began a program for prisoners that facilitated letter exchanges and helped them get books. As we learned in episode one of this podcast, Abbott wrote Kaczynski, commending him for what he thought was a pro-Soviet message in The Painted Bird. Kaczynski replied, saying, Sorry, pal, you misread the book. I have just as little love for Stalin as I did for Hitler and for your shitty commie politics. Abbott didn't like that too much and fired back a number of harassing and even threatening letters. Kaczynski didn't respond and that would have been the end of the story had your boy Norman Mailer not picked up where Jersey left off.
2: As you heard in episode one, Abbott wrote Mailer a series of captivating letters which, along with extolling his heroes Mao and Stalin, were also filled with details about prison life. Details that Mailer then used in his 1979 true-life novel The Executioner's Song, a book about notorious murderer Gary Gilmore that got Mailer his second Pulitzer, this time for fiction, and is often considered his best novel. Mailer liked Abbott's letter so much that he called on Epstein and the other editors and publishers at the Il Mulino dinner to give his new penpal a book deal. They did, and they also helped him get out of jail, so that he could be there for the dinner. As well as make an appearance on Good Morning America, do interviews with Rolling Stone and People magazine, and generally become the literary talk of the town in the late spring and early summer of 1981. Adjusting to life on the outside is notoriously hard
0: for ex-cons, but what's it like when you're 37 years old and from age 12 on you've been behind bars for all but nine and a half months? Well, it wasn't easy for Gary Gilmore, and it wasn't easy for Jack either. Arriving in New York City, staying at a halfway house in the particularly violent East Village, with Mailer and his editors as his only contacts, Abbott was truly
2: a fish out of water. At first he saw Mailer regularly, but at the time, Norman was hard at work researching ancient Egypt for a novel which, yet again, was to be his magnum opus, and he quickly grew tired of his new toy named Jack. According to Norris Church, Mellor's sixth wife, who got stuck with the majority of the Abbott babysitting duties, Norman and Jack didn't really like each other on a personal level. Jack did, however, like Norris, and called her constantly with practical questions, such as where to buy toothpaste or stamps. For a while, she was seeing him on a nearly daily basis, and even introduced him to one of her girlfriends. They were supposed to have a date the night of the 18th, but in the end, Jack had to stand her up as he was busy fleeing New York on murder charges, which was too bad for old Jack because Norris's friend was planning on sleeping with him if the date went well. The reality though, is that it probably would not have gone well.
0: When it came to social interactions, Jack was helpless and he was particularly bad at dinner parties. At one such gathering at the Mailer residence, with Malachay, the writer Dotson Rader, and a Kennedy sister, Pat Kennedy Lawford, in attendance, Rader described Abbott as, quote, the repairman who came to fix the fridge and then was asked to stay for dinner. That night, Abbott was a bit more talkative than usual and spoke up calling the U.S. a fascist hellhole run by pigs. Kennedy Lawford, who was obviously part of the pig class Abbott was referring to, took offense, and, evidently unaware that in her great country convicted felons cannot vote, asked him when was the last time he cast a ballot. Abbott replied that he didn't vote, and she attacked him with the usual liberal refrain that he had no right to complain if he didn't vote. Jack told her he'd rather be in Cuba with her late brother's buen amigo Fidel Castro, and Kennedy Lawford exploded, telling him she'd happily buy him a one-way ticket there before she and Raider stormed out of the dinner.
2: Jack probably should have accepted the offer because a few months later, he was desperately trying to scrape up the money to get there. While his book was bringing in $100,000 in royalties, he was unloading trucks in a Louisiana oil field for $4 an hour, hoping to save up enough money to buy his way onto a boat destined for Havana. But before he could do so, he was captured and extradited back to New York. The two months Abbott had been gone had proved difficult for the people that had dined with him that night at Il Molino. When they'd gotten in the news of the Adan murder, they each had a choice, stick by Abbott or throw him as far under the bus as they possibly could. Well, it was just what I expected it to be. It
0: reinforced my belief that A. Spielberg is an incredibly clever fellow, and anything he touches turns to gold. B. Harrison Ford is an exceptionally handsome man, and if Norris were to leave me for him, I wouldn't necessarily blame her. I would, however, challenge him to a duel, though judging by the film, he's a coward who would shoot me rather than fight. And C. Hollywood is, and has always been, and will forever remain a factory of pure pop drivel. Trust you, me. I've spent enough time there to know it firsthand, and I've made enough movies myself to know better. The fact that anyone could even begin to take this movie seriously as a piece of art shows what a travesty film in this country has become. I spoke to Cagney while on the set of the Foreman movie we've just been involved in, and he agreed that... Well,
3: I quite liked it. What did you think, Jack?
2: Ah, you've seen it too. I feel like everyone here, aside from Kiki and I, has been.
3: Yes, Jack went with Danielle, Norman's daughter, last week in Cape Cod. She raved about it, which is why we went to see it.
2: Ah, I see. So, Jack... You went on a date with Norman's daughter. Uh, did you get anywhere?
3: No, no, no. That's 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 not that's not at all what happened. Uh, Norman, I I uh, assure you that I had I had no 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 intentions toward your daughter.
0: Are you saying my daughter's ugly, Jack?
3: No, 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 not not at all. She's a um, a, a a very nice young lady. Only that um, that I I have the, uh, the utmost respect respect for you, Norman, and uh, and, and and you too, Norris. And I would never ever uh, try anything with your with your daughter.
0: Good, because I don't care how tough you got in the pen. I would still be forced to tear you apart with my bare hands if you did. So, what'd you think of the film?
3: Uh I um, I I kind of I kind of liked it, but you know I'm. I'm no expert on, uh, on movies.
0: Well, you don't have to be an expert, and your opinion is just as valid as mine. And listen, I'm not saying the thing didn't have its merits. It was clearly entertaining. The actress, what's her name? She's definitely something to look at. And you know, it wasn't even completely historically inaccurate. The Lost Ark is supposed to reside in the ancient Egyptian city of Tanis. the ruins of which were actually discovered in 39 by French archaeologist Pierre Monte, who mistakenly believed it to be Pyramesis. Which is the city my very own Pharaoh Rameses II built. Monte was wrong, but Tanis was an important city years later when it became home to the pharaohs during the 21st and 22nd dynasty. Monte found the royal necropolis, which had Ex- been used. Excuse at- me,
2: everyone, may I have your attention? Norm, I'm very sorry to interrupt your dissertation on King Tut, but I promise I'll keep it short and sweet, and then you can go back to regaling us with mummy stories. Now, I would like to read you all something from my novel in progress about George Harrison. It's gonna be called Pinball, and writing it has been my way of coming to terms with uh, John Lennon's murder. Shall I proceed?
0: By all means, Jersey. If it's anything like your last few, I'm sure I and the rest of the table here will be absolutely riveted by your first-rate prose.
2: Well, I'll let you be the first to rate it. Okay, here goes. What am I? Do I exist? Does the world exist? Will I awaken to find this all a dream? (laughs) Funny choices. (laughs) Is there a God? And if so, is he Norman Mailer over there? (laughs) Sorry, sorry, that was ad lib, not in the book. Am I the devil? What is it like to be dead? What does toilet water taste like? What is it like to put a finger up my butt? What would happen should I shit on the floor or piss down my legs? Am I homosexual? What is it like to sleep on this filthy concrete floor? Jersey, enough or... <laughs> Critics of mine have criticized me for being preoccupied with these kinds of themes in my novels. Now I ask you is this a departure or more of the same? Cut the shit, Jersey, you're quoting Jack's book. We get it. Ah, Mr. Mailer has outed me as a plagiarist. The words I read are indeed not my own, but those of my near friend, Jack. Henry Abbott, who depicted his thought while suffering solitary confinement in blackout cells. Jack, I apologize, and I hope you will forgive me. Uh, it's, it's okay, Jersey. But you see, I read them to make a point. Several years ago, I was the victim of an elaborate prank carried out by a door-to-door salesman by the name of Chuck Ross. This Mr. Ross, typed up my novel Steps in manuscript form and then submitted it to four major publishing houses, including your own Jason and Errol. None of you recognized it and you all rejected it, again, including your press, who'd published the book only seven years earlier. Mr. Ross did it again only a couple of years ago, this time sending it to something like 15 publishers and 25 literary agents. Nobody recognized it. Everybody rejected it. Steps, a novel that many consider my finest.
3: I'm sorry, I'm not sure I'm following the point of this.
2: The point, Norris, is that Chuck Ross said my book was only published because of my name. And yet, here is something that I could conceivably have written which would actually be negatively affected by the Kuczynski name. You see, there are some works that can be divorced from their author, and there are some that cannot. Jack's book is one that cannot. It does not mean that it is less of a book. On the contrary, I would argue that it is such a great book that it must be attached to a name, for its existence has now made that name great. Jack Henry Abbott, a name never to be forgotten. Uh, Thank you, thank you,
3: Jersey.
0: To fully understand the milieu into which Abbott was released and what was going on the night of the celebratory dinner, we need to take a look back at the radical chic. The term radical chic originated a decade earlier, in 1971, when Tom Wolfe coined it in an essay he wrote about a cocktail party fundraiser held by Leonard Bernstein and his wife for the Panther 21 who been recently arrested on false and trumped-up charges related to attempted bombings of police stations. He poked fun at the Bernstein crowd for being massively rich and massively white while allying themselves with a the revolutionary movement that stood fundamentally in opposition to their way of life. Fast forward a decade and the Panthers, after every conceivable attack by COINTELPRO, have Like most of the radical left, splintered, retired, got hooked on drugs, or gone underground. The Rev is no longer looking so imminent. Jerry Rubin's move from Haight-Ashbury to Wall Street, Jane Fonda's about to start releasing exercise videos on VHS, and the 80s are beginning to define themselves as a decade that will care a lot more about cocaine, conspicuous consumption, and MTV than it will about radical politics. By 1981, it's no longer so chic to be
2: radical. And by year's end, it'll be a lot less so. Okay, I I want to stop you there and bring up a point that might be on some of our listeners' minds. We don't hear the term radical chic anymore. But is it really any different from all the virtue signaling, performative activism, whatever you want to call it that's all over social media? I mean, everyone is an activist these days so long as activism doesn't challenge their class standing.
0: Yeah, as long as it doesn't pose any serious threat to capitalism, then even the Democrats can fancy themselves woke revolutionaries. But I also think that it's worth pointing out that even more full of shit than the radical chic was the conservative fuck who named them. Yeah, they were posers, but at least they were raising money for a good cause. Wolf was not only belittling them in his article, but by proxy the Panthers as well. I think it's better to stand for something good and be full of shit than to stand for the racist, sexist, consumerist
2: status quo. Mm, Sure. But then again, if I were an activist and not a failing writer managing a deserted bookstore, I'd rather have a clearly defined enemy, say Tom Wolfe or Ben Shapiro or any other conservative asshole. I'd rather have one of those guys in front of me, stating their shitty opinions loud and clear than a bunch of so-called allies spouting out whatever I might want to hear, but who will actually be the first ones to bunker down in daddy's country home when shit hits the fan.
0: (sighs) Yeah, you're kind of right. And on that depressing note, let's go back to our depressing story. That year, there were two high-profile incidents that turned public opinion in the U.S. against the radical left, and mostly put to rest the term radical chic. The second, which happened in October of 81, was the Black Liberation Army's robbery of a Brinks armored car. It didn't go as planned. A guard and two cops were killed in a shootout, and everyone got caught and sent to jail for a long, long time. And a quick aside about that, my father was on his way home that day to see his wife and seven-month-old son, me, when he got caught behind the truck. To escape the gunfire, he ducked down action hero style and slammed the car into reverse. Ah, so your dad had a small part in blowing up the radical chic? Eh, maybe. But the first blow that year, of course, was the Jack Henry Abbott affair. Mailer took a thumping from the press. But, for perhaps the first and last time in this podcast, we have to hand it to him. He could have tried to distance himself from Abbott, but he didn't. He stuck by his ideals and by his pal. While Abbott was on the lam, Mailer all but refused to cooperate with the detectives that were hunting him. And upon arrest, Mailer recommended a criminal lawyer and later testified at the trial, arguing assiduously against a life sentence and making a case that the prison industrial complex was partially to blame
2: for Adan's death. At a raucous press conference after the trial, characterized by one attendee as a, quote, press gangbang, during which Mailer screamed at journalists and called them scumbags, He was photographed holding a copy of the New York Post, with a defamatory headline that read, quote, I'd help killer again. There's also a rather curious photo of him and two other alleged members of the radical chic scene, Susan Sarandon and Christopher Walken, though it's unclear how much the latter two supported Abbott, or if they were just there to hang out with Norman and see the trial. That said, a few years later, surrender and Tim Robbins named their first son Jack Henry Robbins, so who knows. Anyhow, in the court of public opinion, Norman Mailer was found guilty, as he had been for at least three decades, of romanticizing violence. Especially after he declared at the same press conference, "Adown has already been destroyed. At least let Abbott become a
0: writer. Culture is worth a little risk.
2: Do not tell me that you know the truth of life and society, the industrial American society, that is, because at the age of 12 it had turned you into a criminal. Hundreds of thousands of young Poles, Russians, Jews, Ukrainians, Germans, Greeks and others, they all survived World War II when they were 12. And in 1945 I was one of them. The war was Western society at its most barbarous. It was a hell of hells. A terror of terrors. A gas chamber of life's emotions. And when the war ended and we were, like you once were, all 12 years old, none of us became criminals. Georgie, has a salad. You sure you don't want some osso buco? No, no, thank you, Norman. But if you'll excuse me, I'm talking to Jack. More for me then, carry on, enjoy your lettuce. So, Jack, now that you're a free man, do you intend to continue to apply your philosophy of pragmatic violence of your so-called school of gladiators that you wrote about?
3: Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, it depends on the, on the circumstances.
2: Listen, Jack, as a child of World War II, I too came from a gladiator school. But listen to me, I have some very important advice for you. In our world, if one is accosted by a violent man, one must move aside. To confront such a man with violence is to subscribe to his code. And I love life too much to risk it on somebody else's terms.
3: Well, I would, um, I would never uh, let, let let anyone, let anyone push me
2: around. Well, then you might die in the hands of another gladiator. I have been out in this city and in Chicago, and in Los Angeles, and in Denver, and in New Orleans, in big towns and in small towns. I've been to the gambling resorts, to the whore houses, as well as in universities and churches. It happens to be a very violent country. So when they hit you, and you don't move away, they will hit you again.
3: Well, uh, I'm, I'm not going to mo- move away, Jersey.
2: Well. If you won't take that advice, at least take this one. I think you should move away. Move Burrows. Go to Staten Island. To see it will be good for you.
0: Great advice, Jersey. A burrow full of cops would have been a perfect fit for Jack Henry Abbott. Anyhow, the scene you just heard, just like the previous scenes from the dinner, was fiction. There's a big difference, though, between the first two and this last one. The first two are our fiction, based on what we know about the dinner and the people involved. The third was Jersey's. It's an almost word-for-word reconstruction of what he claimed to have said to Abbott that night. But aside from maybe the bit about suggesting that Jack moved to the rugged lands of Shaolin, I don't buy it for a second. See, after Adan's murder, Jersey took the exact opposite approach of Mailer. He apologized for his short-lived participation in what he called the criminal chic, and claimed that he spent most of the dinner at Il Molino trying to talk Abbott away from the path of violence. That's right. While no one else seemed too concerned about Abbott's reintegration efforts, the moral pillar, the role model, the great voice of reason and moderation, Jersey Yusef Levenkov Kazinski intuited that Abbott's violent side would soon again rear its ugly head. And to save him from himself, Jersey took him aside and tried to talk him out of it. After the fact, Jersey was the self-chastising good guy.
2: If only I could have made a more convincing argument for Jack to embrace peace, I might have saved Adam's life. In
0: a 1982 interview with Penthouse Magazine, he went on to say that We all
2: assumed that a violent man coming from a violent environment would become peaceful simply because he happened to be an intellectual. Abbott might have also assumed that simply because he was a writer, he could now deal with his own emotional terror.
0: It's worth noting here that Kaczynski, who claimed to have told Abbott that he'd been raised in a similar gladiator school, the Holocaust, never once visited a therapist or undertook any clear self-help measures to deal with his traumatic childhood. Did Jersey think that because he was a famous writer, he could deal with his own emotional terror? Or because most of his story was made up, did he believe that that emotional terror, that trauma, wasn't really there?
2: Kaczynski continued. Both Mailer and I believe in the purgatory power of art. We pretended he had always been a writer. It was a fraud. It was like the 60s, when we embraced the Black Panthers in that moment of radical chic without understanding their experience. I blame myself again for becoming part of radical chic. I went to that dinner to welcome a writer, to celebrate his intellectual birth, but I should have been welcoming a just-freed prisoner, a man from another planet. Upon arrival in the US, Jersey
0: had tried to steer clear of politics. But after Adan's murder, he not only criticized himself for mistakenly supporting Abbott, but openly criticized those on the left who continued to defend him. Later that year, he publicly opposed a Toni Morrison led push to form a National Writers Union, the politics of which were very much leftist and anti Reagan. The following year, he was part of the launch of a think tank called the Committee for the Free World, which, as you could probably guess, was neoconservative and anti-communist. Its membership included Saul Bellow, Bruno Bettelheim, Tom Stoppard, and a fellow named Donald Rumsfeld. By that time, he'd also thrown in his lot with the Reaganite New York Times and removed any suggestion that he might be a supporter of the left. Now, Jerzy Kaczynski was clearly their adversary. The internet says it was Thomas Mann who said everything is politics. Though I bet somebody else said something similar a hell of a lot earlier. Because, duh, Jersey, everything is politics. We've all known that for a long time. Kaczynski's fatal flaw was thinking he could ride the conservative wave that was sweeping the U.S. and not face any backlash for it. Had Jersey not flip-flopped on Abbott, acting more like a politician than an intellectual of principle, one wonders if he might never have gotten caught. Or if at least he could have kept the charade going for much longer. But his dalliances with the neocons were enough to set some powerful people against him. One of them was Elizabeth Picotta, the literary editor at The Nation, who began to dig into some of the inconsistencies in his writing and the rumors that had circled around the literary world for years that Jersey didn't write his own books. This was the beginning of the end for Jersey Kaczynski, and we'll hear all about it next week in the final episode of season one of Penknife. Jersey, Jersey, where do you think you're going? Sit your skinny ass
2: back down here and have some buka. We're going to toast our man Jack. That means you too, Kiki. Oh, oh I, I beg your forgiveness. By all means, let us toast.
0: No, no don't, don't sit down. Everybody else grab your glasses and stand up. Jason, would you like to do the honors?
1: I'd be honored, indeed. Okay, everyone, glasses raised to the man who overcame the unthinkable to be with us here tonight.
2: The man whose future is as bright as Norman's cheeks after all the wine he's had. The man whose book, I dare say, will outsell Jersey's
0: George Harrison novel.
1: (laughs) A toast to Jack Abbott? A writer, a visionary, a friend.
3: Cheers, Cheers
1: Jack. Thank,
3: thanks. Yeah. Th- thanks.
0: Speech. 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 Come Speech. on. Speech. Speech.
3: No. Oh no. Just uh, th- 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 thank you, uh, Jason and, and Errol and uh, and Jersey and, and Norman and and everyone for, for coming. Uh, thank you. Yeah, thanks, everyone.
2: Penknife is created, written and produced by Corey Eastwood and Santiago Lemoine. Ramona Stout is our editor and narrator. The logo and all things visual have been made by Nelly Cuellar Torres. The sound design, the music, and all things audio are the work of Diego Sanchez of La Pianola Studio in Buenos Aires. Our website, PenKnifePodcast.com, was built by Flor Lopez. And a very special thanks to Mr. Rico Benelli for letting us turn his spare bedroom into a recording studio. We also want to thank Trevor Kluckman, Georgie Wheeler, and Camilla Williamson for lending their voices to the scenes from an Italian restaurant. Season one of Penknife took us two years to make. We're eager to get started on season two, and trust me, we've got some really good stories about writers behaving badly, but to do so, we need your help. If you're enjoying what you're hearing and want season two to become a reality, please consider heading over to patreon.com penknife to support us a cup of coffee or two a month would go a long way. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review Penknife on whatever app or platform you're using. And most importantly, if you like the podcast, please tell a friend about us. And thank you for listening. Oh dear, look at this brazole, as delicate and pure as rose petals. And ah, do yourselves a favor, okay? Do not, I repeat, do not leave the table without trying some of the soppressata. It is to die for. Oh, fuck, huh? This sentence is too long. Oh, let me start over again. Fuck this.